and if I don't catch this, 50,000 people are going to boo me. And I can trust him because of the history that has been there. J-Hap is a guy I don't like to watch pitch. We'll fight before you start rolling your eyes. Welcome to episode two of Digging In with JP Arncibia. I am your host, Nick Ashbourne in the studio with JP today, which is uh, changing things up. And uh, our guest today is the one and only Jose Bautista. Just came up with the Atlanta Braves, already had some success his first couple games. Yeah, Mr. Uh, Boom Boom Bautista. Uh, He is uh, a guy who is a good friend of mine and who I'm very excited to see back in the big leagues. Obviously, he was in AAA and, and Kind of got quicker ready than I expected. I didn't think that he was going to be there that short. I thought it was going to be a little bit of a longer stint. But first game, double off the wall in center field. And I think uh, he's going to bring a lot more value to that team than people expect. But I'm excited to have that conversation with him, uh, catch up with him, and uh, you know, let the fans and kind of into what's, what's going on in, in Jose Bautista's world now. I think the fans have always wanted to know what's going on in Jose Bautista's world. He can be a bit... Uh, you know, calculated and what he tells us. Hopefully, we see him open up a little bit more today. Well, yeah, if he doesn't open up, I'll uh, I'll track him down because I'm not too far uh, where I live in in Atlanta or uh, in Tennessee. I'm I'm three hours away from Atlanta, so he knows that I'll track him down. Me and him uh, again. We used to ride back and forth to the ballpark together uh, when I played here in Toronto. So me and him have a close relationship. So he knows that I uh, I can I can find where he's at. So if he doesn't open up, he'll be in trouble and. Uh, We'll, we'll make sure he does. Luckily, we explained the show last time, so this time we can get into it a little bit quicker. The name of the podcast is Digging In, so we like to get right into the big topics of the day. And for the Blue Jays, right now that has to be the rotation for me. Like This is a team where that's supposed to be the strength, and you know, just throwing some numbers out there, ERA not always the best number, but it's one we all know, 540, that's just not good enough. If you go a little bit deeper, the FIP 495, a little bit better. But this is a team that's just not getting those six and seven inning starts out of their rotation, which is what they thought they'd get from a veteran group. Yeah, I mean, it's listen, it's early in the year, and I'm going to be always the more positive one uh, on this show, uh, I feel like, for the most part. But it's starting pitching for me has become – not it's not overrated. I'm not going to ever say overrated. You, if you don't have starting pitching, you're in trouble. Um, for me, the bullpen has become more of the you know, hey, if a starter can make it to the fifth inning, let's go to our bullpen and close out the game. I think that they've analytically have realized that there's more value at the back end of the game. But you know, listen, Strowman is not going to have a, a seven ERA the entire year. Uh, Jay Happ obviously has been the best starter. I think Estrada is a guy who's really good at times, but he's a guy who, you know, like we've talked about even with Tyler Clippard, you never know what you're going to get in the sense of he can go out there and punch out 10 and have a great game and the next game go out there and give up four homers. And so that's something that's kind of – you always want to have that consistency, right? You look at all the best staffs. You know, we are talking about the Houston Astros. All the best staff have a consistency at least of pitchers going out there and doing some, some stuff. We haven't. And then, again – Jaime Garcia for me is a guy who I don't know is he is he a guy who's going to be able to help you be a playoff contending team could it happen possibly but could there be somebody else that can take his place I think that it, eventually they're going to have to look at that all right so let's indulge your uh, positive nature and start with Jay Hap what are you seeing from this guy because for me 
you are getting a lot more strikeouts, more than you've ever seen from him. But he's also having a few home run programs, programs, a few home run problems. And I'll, I'll be honest, J-Hap is a guy I don't like to watch pitch because it's just fastball, 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 fastball. And I can admire the location and the command that makes that possible, but I don't find it that enjoyable. So when he's pitching well, all I have to say about him is, well, he's locating that fastball. Is there something I'm missing there? No, it, you're not. Honestly, what, what the, the value of that fastball is, as we talk about, is, is now analytically they're able to kind of break down what a good fastball looks like. And what JA does really well is spin the ball at a high rate. So he gets that fastball that doesn't come down. And actually, when I, when I caught him, he would throw some sinkers and he was he – was, not as advanced of a pitcher when I caught him here in Toronto. He was a guy who was good. He kind of wanted to go to his off-speed more, his slider, his curveball, change-up. And I think he goes to Pittsburgh, figures some stuff out, is able to go and, and kind of better himself, and then comes back to Toronto and realizes he got a new arm slot. His velo, his velocity uh, went from 90 to 95. I mean, he's he's mid-90s, guys. So I think – if he is locating that fastball, the thing that he can do is if he's locating that fastball, he's got that extra oomph on the fastball. They call it finish, whatever you want to call it. And because he's going to do that and when he's doing that well, everything else plays, right? If he doesn't have his fastball, maybe he has to go to some breaking pitches or something. And because his fastball is not staying on the plane that it has to stay, now his breaking balls and his off-speed suffers because of that. So the home runs, are they alarming? Yeah, Toronto, obviously, you know, the ball flies. The AL East is a home run hitting, hitting league. Um, but again, the strikeouts, I mean, he's got 53 in uh, 41 and two-thirds inning. And for me, that's something that says he's he's throwing the ball well. And another stat that always stands out to me is, is hits. As a hitter, I always wanted to look at a pitcher's hits per innings, right? He's got 40 innings. Does he have 40 hits? Does he got 40 innings? Does he got 60 hits? Because I know that that's somebody who's maybe stuff – is hittable, very hittable, right? He has less hits than innings, so that tells me that his stuff is still very, very sharp. Yeah, I think that because he's so consistent and he's been the sort of prototypical third starter for so long, we forget how rare it is to have a guy who's a left-hander who throws that hard at the top of the zone. Like, it's not a, not a lot of pitchers like that in the league. So even if I'm joking before about how I get a little bit bored watching Hap, it, we do have to recognize that what he brings to the table is a little bit unique, and there's a reason why he's been so successful with this for the last few years. Well, and if you look at it, look at the lefties across the league, right? Sean Doolittle, he is a big-time, big-time, high-percentage fastball guy, and he's 94, 95, sometimes 93, and he literally just throws forcing fastballs at the top of the zone and dominates. Another guy who used to be in the American League, East, Jacob McGee. Remember with Tampa, he was a guy, and yeah, it was 97, 98, right? It was coming in hot, but he had zero breaking pitch. We all knew as a hitter, like, hey, it's all fastballs, but he still struck everybody out because you're right. Think about, one, how many lefties there are compared to righties in baseball, and two, usually lefties, you go Mark Burley, you look at Jaime Garcia, not a hard thrower. and then There's all a of finesse a, reputation with left-handers. Yeah, and so now all of a sudden you get a guy who's – throwing mid-90s mid with some breaking pitches that he can throw for strikes. That's what makes Jay Happ so special. And again, I think his struggles uh, made him even better for where he is now. 
Okay, we're done. We're done gushing because really, there's only one pitcher to gush about so far. JP, we had you had your moment. Now we move to the problem areas, and next up is Aaron Sanchez. This is a guy that we've discussed a little bit, and what he's doing so far scares me a little bit. He's had seven starts, and he's walked more guys than he struck out four times, and was equal once. And I know that he's had that big near no hitter start, and he has gone deeper in a couple games. His ERA is pretty respectable. But for me, he's moving to this changeup, and I'm a little bit worried because for me, we're not seeing that 2016 Aaron Sanchez we were hoping we'd see. Yeah, I think it's it's going to take an adjustment for him. Um, the walks is a big problem, right? Anytime you have free passes, you get hurt, right? Like that's just the bottom of the line. Because if if you give a guy a free pass, you know somebody's going to get a hit, right? Somebody's going to be able to to get a hit most of the time throughout the game. So if you're given free bases, now that equals runs. And Especially with all the home runs in baseball right now, I feel like the walks are even more costly than they used to be. 100%. And that's the one thing. And the good thing is, is he's only given up three, right? Like if you think about it, three and seven games, is, it's is that bad. great? It's not terrible. But um, for me, and this is something that we've we've kind of gone on, I think the, the changeup is a huge addition for him. And what I like is that he hasn't really perfected it yet. I think it's a great pitch. Obviously, MLB considered it the best changeup uh, for anybody in the in the American League East. But it's learning how to be able to throw it more consistent. He has to learn how to pitch off of his fastball with that a little bit more. And then, obviously, his breaking pitch, we all know about his blister problems. And so that's something for me, too, that says, hey, if I get Aaron Sanchez for more starts at a three-something ERA, low four ERA, I'll take that than having him like we had to have him last year for 30-something innings. And that's was a well, huge— he's already pitched more innings this year than he did last year. Exactly. So, I, mean, that's, I guess that's already a win. Well, that's and that's what I'm saying is that I'd rather have him you know, be out there every start if I know that that changeup is going to allow that because it's a lot less pressure on that finger. Again, he has to continue to learn. And what he, what, one thing for him is his movement is so much. There's a couple guys on the staff that are the same way. Aaron Sanchez's fastball moves so much. His changeup moves so much into the zone, out of the zone, that sometimes that movement hurts. It's tough. It's really, really tough to repeat all the time with so much movement on a pitch. And that's why also the major leagues are tough. You face pitchers. The more you face them, the more hitters you get to see them, the more they understand what they're going to do. So now maybe where they were swinging at that sinker early in his career – now they're going, well, I don't know, we're going to make him throw this pitch up. And so now guys are taking some more pitches that they would have swung at first year round because they didn't see him as much. All right, I'm going to lump the next three guys together because I think they've all had their struggles. And I know that the people here want to hear from Joey Bats. So we've got Estrada, Garcia, and Stroman. From that group, which is sort of at this point the back end of the rotation, I know that Stroman's probably not going to be there when the end of the season comes around. What are your biggest concerns? For Because I'm seeing a lot of the same stuff with Stroman and Garcia. You're both seeing inflated walk rates, not getting good pitchers counts. And Estrada even a little bit. Estrada's kind of, it's, it's always home runs with him. I think some days he'll have more, some days he'll have less. But with that group, who do you see coming out of it? You spoke on Stroman a little bit earlier last week, and who are you a little bit more worried about? Well, for me, 100%, I think Stroman, I, I don't think, I believe, and I know that he's going to come out of this better. I mean, this is a guy who understands perseverance. He's 
uh, unreal. The way he goes about his business, it's unreal how much this this guy works and how how hard he works at his craft. So uh, for me, that's that's something. I think he's going to have to make adjustments. I think it's it's tough to pitch um, with seven different winds up wind ups and then like five or six really really above average pitches. Like sometimes, if you have too many tools in the in the toolbox. It's kind of tough to know which one you want to use instead of being good at just a few. You know that makes it a little bit harder, and I think that's that's something that he'll continue to to go out there and improve. I think that you know we talked about it—the addition, or not addition, the continuing continuance of using a fastball up in the zone. Right, he, all his pitches go down. The fastball up in the zone would really, really help him as a hitter. For me, as a hitter, when a guy was able to throw a fastball up in the zone, it was much more difficult to be able to tell if it was a fastball, a slider, a curveball, because everything came out of that same slot. And so I think when he makes that addition, instead of just throwing everything that, because his pitches are so nasty, they all go down at, at a, at a pretty uh, firm rate. So I think that he'll be good, right? His walks, he's going to have to, he's going to have to not walk guys as much as he's doing. He's walking guys at too much of a clip. For him. It's going to come down. It's like, it's never been a problem before. Like that's where I'm at with it. Where, I don't think he's forgotten what the strike zone is. You know what I mean? Like Sanchez has had problems in the past with walks, so yeah. it makes it a little bit more worrying. For me with Stroman, he's going to figure that out. Well, and and that's where I think. But here's here's the, the one that for me stands out is is Jaime Garcia, right? He's a guy who I've faced before, uh, and he throws – he threw everything moved. And now he's having to throw a little bit more of a four-seam. And, and when you're throwing a four-seam at 87, 88 – there's a good chance that if you miss, it's going to get hit. And in this league, it's going to get hit very far. And uh, something that's alarming to me is the 297 batting average against, right? Like those are Hall of Fame numbers. A guy hits 300 throughout the, his career. That's not a good thing. And when your starting pitcher is going out there and getting hit, like at that rate, it's. Yeah, you don't want every hitter you face to be a Hall of Famer. No. That's a bad sign. Well, and he's got 13 walks. Again, if you, if you look at it, Estrada. Right, home run pitcher. He's given up nine. You go uh, Garcia, Jaime. He's got eight. Both of them have fourteen and thirteen walks. Y- you can't now. We literally used to say this all the time. Solo home runs. Who cares? Tip your hat. Two run homers, three run homers, grand slams. That's where you really get hurt. And if you're walking guys, and you're a fly ball pitcher, it's tough to turn a double play when you have a guy on first base and you hit it, and he hits a fly ball. Right. So. That's another thing. Stroman, Sanchez, Hap, these guys can get ground balls. When you're fly ball pitchers, you don't really get out of those innings when you walk the guy on the base on a double play and all of a sudden you hit a two-run homer, you're down 2-0, it's a different game. And that's where Garcia has been this year. He's given up way more fly balls. Like you said, he's moved to the four-seamer more. To me, he looks like a guy who's he's making an adjustment, but the adjustment's not working. So maybe he needs to backtrack and go back to what made him successful in the past. All right, and now... Here with one of the best teammates I've ever had, somebody who I think is gravely misunderstood, one of the best players uh, in the last 10 years in the big leagues, and uh, recently signed with the Braves, Jose Boom Boom Bautista, my buddy, my friend, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, good, man. I'm excited to see you back in the big leagues. Uh, Talk to me, obviously, your connection with Alex. Um, you, you go into a situation with a real good young team. Uh, give me a little bit about your situation there. I'm extremely excited. Uh, obviously, the team has been doing great as, as everybody's been watching in the first 
month or so. Um, they have a lot of young talent um, mixed in with a couple of veterans that are established and you know know what they're supposed to bring to the table on a day-to-day basis. So it's basically just about a good group of players going out there and executing and, and hoping for the best help that we could have. So, um, you know, I'm glad to join that group and hopefully I can contribute uh, in any way that I can. Jose, when you talked to uh, John Law of The Athletic, you mentioned that you had kind of offers on the table, but this Atlanta one appealed to you. And a big part of that was your relationship with Alex Anthopoulos. What is it about you and Alex's dynamic that made you feel really comfortable coming to this team? Well, just that the trust level is there. I can really um, take in what he says as, you know, absolute truth. And I can trust him because of the history that has been there. As, as to in other situations, you kind of got to take it with a grain of salt. And you have to kind of put things on the balance where, you know, club executives might be telling you sometimes what you want to hear. Sometimes they um, they don't want to promise too much. So it's, it's just a, a really um, balancing act and, and how to interpret what the other teams say in because you don't know them as well and they don't know you. I uh, suppose with Alex, it's, a, you know, it's like talking to an old friend and there's that trust level there. Sometimes people forget early in your career that you really you had this odd beginning where you bounced to four teams in one season. And I'm just wondering how that affected how you see baseball as a business, because I think you're known as an entrepreneurial guy, and now you've gone through this offseason, the previous one. Do you think that that early experience made you feel kind of more prepared for that world and maybe less naive than some of the other guys who go through and just kind of get drafted and roll with their team for their whole career? Well, I can't really speak about other guys' uh, experiences or, or how they look at things or how they might react, but... I feel like in anything that I do in life, I try to um, become educated and understand uh, just so I, my peace in mind is I'm a curious person and I like knowing where I stand and understanding the, the places where I'm spending time. So um, I definitely like to, to know what's going on. So for those reasons, I try to pay attention. Um, the fact that I had to deal with a lot of transactions uh, early in my career made me understand some of that stuff, but uh, I can't really say that that was the only reason or that is be- why I kind of understand you know, the business side more than the other. I would say just my experience overall. So, Boom Boom, as you know, this podcast, I, I like to get in the nitty-gritty with uh, in-depth analysis on baseball, uh, really talking the X and the X's and O's, but one thing that I'm excited is is to get into some other things and some more personal things with players. Uh, there's things that uh, that go unnoticed. There's a lot of things that people don't see that happen behind the scenes, and one of those is how you help your teammates. Uh, you helped me before. You had me go down and train with you. I got to hit with you. You've had others players go down and hit with you, and you take these guys under their wing. Um, talk about why that's so important to you. Uh, talk about how much pride you take in that. And that's something, again, that, that people don't know about, uh, that you do a, a very, very good amount of, of, of time doing. I think being a good teammate is it's not only about, you know, being there during the season, talking about, you know, the day-to-day supporting and all that. I mean, all that is included, but 
Um, the, I mean, in my opinion, the most important part about being a teammate is helping somebody be better. It's being able to, from the outside, look at somebody's um, collective talent and overall, um, you know, value proposal to a team and somehow make them a, even 1% better. Um, I like to say that I, I watch baseball and I analyze it and I can see certain things just like everybody else that plays the game at this level probably can. The one difference is I'm not afraid to, um, you know, voice my opinion to teammates, um, whether it's constructive criticism, whether it's um, acknowledging their strength, uh, where, whether it's uh, complimenting them just to kind of reinforce or make them aware of things that they could be doing to become better. And for that reason, uh, at different times in my career, especially in the off season, uh, I make myself available to any teammate that wants to come and work out with me because if I feel like I can add to your repertoire as an athlete and make you just 1% better, um, that makes our team better, and that means that we're closer to our goal of winning a championship. So uh, that's the only reason why I do stuff like that. Again, you hit on the fitness part, and and that's something for me uh, that people don't also understand is you are a guy who who loves to get in depth in anything you want to learn about what you're doing. You take care of your body. You you eat the right things. Uh, you do all the the things off the field to prepare yourself uh, for this game. That's why I don't think that the age is a big thing for you. Uh, talk about what you do off the field and, and your, your fitness and, and how you prepare. Yeah, and, and to me, when you're young, I feel like your body is, is like a young machine. And, it's, you know, everything's working nice. All the bells and whistles are tuned up and, you know, uh, everything fires. You rest and you go to sleep and you wake up feeling refreshed. And as your, your training load and your baseball load gets, you know, more and more and more throughout the years and injuries and nagging stuff here and there and playing through, you know, pain and soreness for six months, you know, things start going, you know, all over the place and your body doesn't work as nicely together. So that's why as athlete, as an athlete, I feel like I've had to focus a lot on the off the field stuff like recovery and the training and the off season, just to make sure that I one, like you said, keep my fitness level up too. Uh, I work on my uh, strengths and weaknesses. And three, just kind of balance my body out. We play a one-directional sport uh, that's rotational, and we continuously make the same move over and over and over and over again. We're always going to our left. We're always rotating to to our left. Uh, you know, if you're a right-handed player and left-handed is the opposite, but it's one-directional nonetheless. And next thing you know, you're just, created a lot of muscle imbalances and, um, you know, accentuated your weaknesses and your strengths are so solidified that uh, it's like running with, with less air on, on the tires of one side of the car than the other. So you have to use the off-season to reset, to go back to normal and continue to, to do the things that allow you to recover well, which are get enough rest and good quality rest, eat well, um, and also, you know, get your first share of, of soft tissue work, massage, acupuncture, whatever that might be. If, 
personal preference at that point, I guess. Jose, you're mentioning that, you know, when you're young, these things come easier and maybe you don't have to work as hard at it. You're on a team right now with some of the youngest players in baseball. Do you think that you have the ability through your work to set a good example for them and what it's going to take for these guys to stick around for a long time in this league? Well, what I meant was, and this is, again, my opinion, um, when you're young, your body has an easier ability to adapt. And as you get older, that ability kind of gets diminished. So you have to do as much as you can to keep that at a high level or aid it as you're getting older in a way that you can. So, I mean, hopefully just by leading by example and, and having these guys watch how you go about it at, at an older age and them understanding that age is just a number that uh, it can become an obstacle uh, to whomever allows allows that to happen. Um, that is enough to, to where they can say, you know what, there's no reason why I can't be on the same boat and do it just like Jose is doing it when I'm that old if I start, you know, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, and I wish um, I would have started a little bit earlier, even though I feel like I've always kind of been on the forefront. But I feel like in the last 10 years, the development and, and this industry and all the research that's come out and the strength and conditioning uh, industry and weightlifting and um, on the recovery side, I feel like has made um, tremendous ad- advancements in the last 10 years that weren't available maybe when I got started. One of the specific younger guys whose career uh, has been impacted by you, who always talks about it these days, is Teoscar Hernandez. And that's a guy who's really taking off for the Blue Jays right now. What do you think you're able to do for him? And is he a guy whose career you're going to kind of watch closely going forward? Um, well, I, I feel like Teoscar is one of those young guys that um, kind of watches from the distance. He's not a guy that's going to come up to you and you know talk to you every single day. He'll pick and choose his times where he reaches out and he'll ask questions. Um, and I think he goes about it in a great way because he um, he looks, he he learns, and he tries different things. At least this is what I've noticed, and uh, whatever works for him, he sticks with and. That's the way that I used to go about uh, about it when I was younger. So I'm excited to to hear that you know he's he's mentioned me a few times. I don't feel like I went out of my way too much to help him. I think everything that he's doing has been um, the result of his own hard work and dedication. I do appreciate his comments, but I don't want to take any credit for him either. Um, I just think he's one of those smart guys that just you know absorbs everything that's around him and. Uh, I, applies whatever he feels like is going to help him. And I think that's a great way to to um, to continue to get better uh, day in and day out. All right, Jose, one last one for me. So obviously I want to finish with a bang. This is something that we all know uh, to be one of the, the best sports moments in Toronto, one of the biggest home runs in the history of the Blue Jays. Obviously – during that at-bat, you fouled off a sinker. And this is something that I've showed to, to younger players. Uh, you step out and you regroup yourself and you hit a home run. And I don't remember if it was the, the following pitch, but you hit a home run on the same exact pitch that you kind of fouled off. Uh, the one thing I know is the difference between great players and good players is a mindset. I was a guy uh, who was a good player, but – you know, I don't think that I, I had the right thought process at times. Um, don't give me the, the 
the old vanilla. I, I saw it up and hit it. Um, I want to know what you were thinking on deck. I want to know what you were thinking on that foul ball. I, I want to know what was in your head leading up into that situation. Some guys would have made an adjustment. You obviously stuck with your plan. Uh, talk to me about that at bat. Well, I think it was a, obviously a big situation in the game, a great opportunity for us. I think the wheels were kind of falling up on, on their team there in a hurry. They made like three consecutive errors. We got on the board and uh, and we didn't have runs before that. I think, you know, the momentum was certainly on our way. So um, I think our whole team, and including myself, we were going into that inning like we got nothing to lose. Let's try to pile something on. And um, they might have got a little defensive where they try to protect their lead. So, you know, we were aggressive. They were a little bit sensitive, and it showed in, in the way that they maybe were playing the defense. And, you know, it set up that opportunity for me to come in and uh, be able to get that that hit that put us ahead. So um, I had faced them before. I knew I had run runners in scoring position, and um, – I think they were men on first and third. So if he had to walk me, he still had to face another good hitter. So I figured that at some point I was going to get at least one good shot to, to get a good swing off. I know that he throws, at least at that time, almost exclusively uh, sinkers, and then sometimes he would throw split fingers. So regardless, I had to see the pitch up in the zone. Um, since he had so much movement, anything that was – up and out over the plate was better than anything that started off inside because that most likely would end up the ball. So I just tried to see him up. I did a good job. I think laid off a two splits to start off the at-bat, and after I got into a hitter's count, I decided to be a little bit more aggressive. The first sinker he threw me was pretty good, had a, a lot more bite than the one I hit. Um, I fouled it off, like you said, and then on a 2-1 count, um, he just probably felt like he had not a lot of room for a mistake, and he tried to you know, gave me to two strikes instead of 3-1, and he just kind of left that one sinker uh, up in the zone a little bit more, and I had his timing down. He had got me out a few times earlier in the year with grand balls to the left side. Uh, I miss, I miss under, uh, I mean, I underestimated, you know, the power of his sinker, so I felt like my timing was pretty good, and again, I saw the ball good out of the zone. I was seeing him up, and from there, I just try to hit the ball in the air um, to get the guy in from third, but I just managed to, you know, hit it right on the barrel, and, you know, the rest is, is uh, I think, something that most Canadian fans have seen at this point. So um, it was an exciting moment. I felt like, um, you know, I, I did something obviously extremely productive for our club and our franchise, especially after 22 years of not being in the playoffs for that to happen and put us in a position to hey, move hey, on. Hey, come on. Let's uh, be honest I'm, here. That was freaking sexy. It was it was really <laughs> sexy. And I know you're a humble man, um, but when you step out, you hit that foul ball, a lot of people don't understand. It's very easy to say, hey, you know, see that pitch, make an adjustment. You stuck with it, and you hit a tank. That's why you're special. And again, don't be humble I'm going to say that it was freaking unreal. Very sexy. Well, the only other thing I can ask is, I guess, in moments like that where, you know, the situation is big and there feels like there's very little room for mistake on both sides of the game, I think people go to the comfort level. And I know that he had way more comfort with a sinker than any other pitch at that point. So, um, 
I just I try to see the, the pitch up and look for for that sinker, and, and uh, he gave me a good one to hit. Well, I appreciate uh, you know you analyzing it, breaking it down, the humility. We know that JP likes to be the hype man. He wants to jump in there, but I like uh, hearing the analytical side of the game. We really appreciate you uh, spending your time with us a little bit today. Uh, thanks for coming on. No problem, guys. My pleasure. Yep. And don't sleep on Boom Boom Bautista. National League, he's coming in hot. All right. Last episode, we introduced this segment called Memory Lane, where we take a story in baseball and we get JP's perspective based on something that happened in his own career. This one's a little bit fun. So I was doing a little bit of research and I discovered that, you know, some of the stuff doesn't go back that far because it's fan grass. But since 2002, we've known sort of every pitch that's been thrown and all the types. And this year is the first season that no knuckleballs have been thrown by anyone in baseball. I feel like JP is happier about that than, you know, pretty much anyone. So Last week, we had a very famous positive JP story. This time, we've got a uh, little bit of a murkier, darker story. Wait a second. You say last week was a positive story? Me? Your debut. That's a positive oh, story. I thought you were talking about the bunting. I'm going, oh, hey, dude. Man, I, the bunting's still in your head. Yeah, <laughs> you're sorry. Still thinking about the bunts. No, the debut is a very positive story. So this time around, we're going with the 2013 opener and what led up to it. So I think where we want to start is, and we you were talking about this earlier, is the idea of how confident you were, the idea of catching knuckleballs, and how much you wanted to take on that challenge, and then sort of where it went downhill from there. Well, one um, f off for <laughs> uh, bringing up knuckleballs because those—that's my arch nemesis is the ball that doesn't spin uh, as a catcher, at least because I had some success. How did success. you do hitting them? You hitting uh, them? I, I hit. I took R. A. Dickey deep here in <laughs> Toronto when I came back with Texas, and I took Wakefield deep twice in in. Uh, my career so better as a hitter but um so how it started actually was when we signed R.A. Dickey right I'm this or we traded for him I'm I'm the opening I'm the starting catcher right so I say hey I'm I'm catching this dude opening day like I don't care and they're like well you know we're getting the knuckleball catcher yada yada I'm like no this is I'm the catcher I'm the starting catcher opening day I take pride in that so they're like okay we'll catch him in spring and we'll see if we can get you catch him right so Spring training, obviously very different. The balls, he's not, his knuckleball wasn't as good at that point. So I caught him well in spring training. I actually played in the World Baseball Classic that year, caught him in the World Baseball Classic. So when I got back from the World World Baseball Classic, uh, Gibby had a, a meeting with me and he said, hey, listen, we think that you uh, did well enough in the World Baseball Classic. We're going to give you that chance to catch him uh, opening day. And so I was all fired up, right? Like, this is great. Um until opening day, and now there's fifty thousand fans in the in the crowd, and Ra is throwing his knuckleball, and it at at that in that day it wasn't really it was tough because he didn't have much control. His adrenaline was so high that it was his knuckleball was all over the place, which he's usually at least in the zone, and it you makes think of him as this sort of cool collected character too, like a you know middle aged man dad type that wouldn't get uh, fired up that way. Well, no, he did, and so. Now you add him getting fired up, him not throwing the ball really in the strike zone at the at that game. He was he was throwing it everywhere. And then you have me who is going, Oh my goodness, this is really happening. There's a baseball coming at me. 
and I have no idea what it's about to do. And there's a guy on first base, and if I don't catch this, 50,000 people are going to boo me. And sure enough, guy on first base, pass ball, guy on second base, pass ball, and now I'm just fighting for my life, right? Like I'm just going, just hit this thing down. Who cares? If it hits you in the chest, I don't care. But I remember having those pass balls, all that stuff, crowd booing and stuff like that and kind of really backfiring on me and so now my anxiety is through the roof all that stuff and so game ends and I'm like okay this was terrible not a good day that was not fun and so the next day I get to the yard and John Gibbons calls me into the to the office and he's like hey I got you know I I got something for you sit down I'm like all right he's like listen we're gonna give you that one day off every five um we're gonna have somebody else catch them and i I mean, literally, he couldn't have finished the sentence. And I was like, okay, thank you. See ya. And I was out of the office because I was like, I never wanted to do that again. Opening so they, day was good enough. There's, so there's no sense of pride like, oh, I can come back and I can fight back and I can do this. It was just like, nope, let it go. Let oh, that no. be someone else's job. Oh, no. It was it was legit like going, he finished his sentence and I was like, see ya. <laughs> Peace, dude. I'm out. And so literally, and this is a, this is a true story, is – well. Henry uh, Blanco would catch him and Henry was pretty good at catching him, but it's tough. And so he would literally finish the game after the game was over. He'd come straight to his locker because we were locker mates and he would open up a bottle of alcohol that he had tucked away and would take a really, really long swig of it and look at me and go, that's brutal. Cause it's that tough, man. It sucks. Yeah, you got to be a warrior. And I think that's where there's in this town, there's been quite a bit of disdain for Josh Tolley over the years, but maybe we need to circle back and give Josh Tolley the credit that he deserves because that is a hard way to make a living. Dude, I, I always tell people, no one understands how good Josh Tolley was at doing it because as a person who literally, I told you before, I was on the brink of going, hey, I'll give my entire salary for this season if if anyone thinks that they can catch this because I guarantee it, it's 100%. No one's going to catch it. Like I've watched bullpen catchers who have been bullpen catchers for their entire career and out of, came out of a pro ball and, and for the Blue Jays. Alex Andropoulos is his name. And this dude would still miss it. And he's caught for however many years all these pitchers in the major leagues and he was missing it all the time because it's just that tough to catch. So it's like, listen, man, Anyone who wants to catch a knuckleball, Russell Martin thought he wanted to catch the knuckleball. That didn't go well either. He said, heck no, I'm done with this the next year. So I get it. Do you think that Dickey was ever kind of annoyed with these guys who were trying to catch it and couldn't do it? Because, you know, it's difficult for him as a pitcher too to see balls go by and, you know, guys be able to taking bases and whatnot. Well, yeah, he actually, one time I remember very well, it was in spring training and I could see him kind of like roll his eyes a little bit. And I got really upset. And I went in the dugout. I was like, hey, listen, you got a problem? And he was like, no, no, why? What's up? And I'm like, well, I saw you rolled your eyes. But let me tell you something. If you think this is freaking easy to catch, dude, I'm out. This is – don't – I'm like, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I'm not doing it if you're going to be out there doing that stuff because I'm like, dude, we'll fight before you start rolling your eyes. Because, again, that I'd rather have – I would have rather have had a fishing net to catch than a, than a glove. It's funny that he, you know, and I think, you know, probably true of other knuckleball pitchers, maybe doesn't quite even understand sort of the effect that he has on other people and how difficult that, you know, that thing is to do. 
Yeah, well, again, like I said, I there was I wanted to kind of tackle him when I saw that because I'm like, dude, you're literally throwing a ball that looks like it's coming in like a butterfly, like, and I'm supposed to catch it with this glove. F that. That was it's brutal. And again, I don't wish it on anybody. And I definitely, if I hear knuckleball, it kind of shakes me up a little bit. So I appreciate you for already firing me up for the uh, this podcast. <laughs> All right, I will. I'll let you off the hook. We could. I mean, I could poke you about knuckleballs all day. I think that'd be amusing for me. It might be amusing for the viewers back home. But just my compassion as a human, we're gonna move on. Our next segment is outside the nest. So just identifying stories outside of Blue Jays land that are interesting, a little bit different, and one that caught my eye this week is Trevor Bauer. Now. For people who know Trevor Bauer, they know he's a bit of a, uh, he likes to stir things up. He's a very outspoken guy. He went at the Astros last week because he was talking about them using foreign substances on the ball, sticky stuff, pine tar, saying it's getting their spin rate up. And if I wanted to have no morals, then I would use that and I would be like the best pitcher and it's more impactful than steroids. And maybe there's some truth to that, but I think that what some people back home don't realize is just how widespread this is. So maybe that's something you can speak to, the fact that people are talking about making it legal because everyone to some, not everyone, but pretty much everyone to some extent is using something. Yeah, well, Captain America needs to take it easy because <laughs> the whole that, oh, I would, the holier than thou, I hate when people do that. It's stupid. Like, listen, you can do it. Anybody else can do it. And most everybody does it. Just like everybody on the – all defensive players have some kind of pine tar on their glove, some kind of pine tar. I had it on my shin guard, and it wasn't the doctor of the ball. It wasn't the cheat. It was literally just to be able to have grip myself. If I'm facing a guy who's throwing in the mid-90s, which it seems like everybody throws in the mid-90s these days, I want that dude to have control of the baseball and be able to grip the baseball because – the last thing that I want is this guy not having control of the baseball and getting smoked. And the thing is, is that Major League Baseballs are very slick. There's not a very high seam, and the balls are very slick. That's why before games, umpires are supposed to rub up the balls or whoever, the, the clubhouse guys, they rub up the balls with these with this like mud so that it can darken it up and kind of give it a little bit more of a grip because these balls straight out of the packet are slippery as can be. Now, again... As a hitter, safety, I want the dude to be able to control it. We all know that these guys use stuff. Now, what they say is don't be blatant about it, right? Like Michael Pineda, he he dumped. Yeah, that was he, a big one. Yeah, he dumped the entire thing of pine tar on his neck. Like, okay, maybe don't do it to that extent. But again, we all do. As hitters, we use pine tar because we want to have grip. And a pitcher needs to have that grip as well. So I, I think that... It, what he's saying is kind of a joke in the sense of the whole moral thing. Like just, that's a little bit for me sounding like the, the jealousy ordeal. It seems like he's just taking, you know, he's taking the rules very literally. And I think he's confusing morality with following the rules and those things can be in lockstep, but they aren't always. Have you ever faced a pitcher where he was using something and you felt like it was doing something to the ball that might have been a little bit unfair, like a little bit too much of an advantage, some kind of weird move action on it? Well, yeah, I don't know if you remember. Um, they actually made a big deal about it. Remember Clay Buckholtz when he pitched against Toronto, uh, I don't know how many years ago, he was touching, he had a sticky substance on his forearm and he would he would touch it and, I, and he threw a ridiculous game against us and his ball was moving like nobody's business, right? I mean, again is what it is, man. That's part of the game. Like there's a lot of 
the game within the game, you can't really, it's just like a lot of guys use sunscreen and rosin. Sunscreen and rosin makes your hand super sticky, makes your forearm super sticky. So when you see guys do the, the rosin, all that stuff, and guys using sunscreen, yeah, it's protection, but they've also so used it for stickiness in the sense of what are you going to say as an umpire? Hey, you can't have sunscreen. Well, I'm trying to protect my my body from the sun. And oh, what in the rosin's out here, so I need grip. And so when you make those two together, it really becomes sticky almost to the point where sometimes you can hold the ball with an open hand and literally the ball doesn't fall. So again, I understand what what it is about oh the, the stickiness or whatever, but the only thing I like about what Bauer said was all right, let's make a substance that everybody uses. Let's make let's make it on the mound. Let's put it on the mound. Let's put it behind the mound. And everybody uses the same exact thing. I'm cool with that, right? There's rosin back there. Now if it now whatever you want, put a sticky thing back there or however and regulate it because everyone does it anyways. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's what the core of the issue is, right? And you don't want to make all behavior allowed just because everyone does Like there's some bad things that happen and it's like, oh, everyone's doing it. We should, then it should be allowed. That's not a good rule for life. But in terms of baseball and this particular situation, I think that, yeah, Bauer's response was a little bit disproportionate and but that idea the idea of like let's just open it up and kind of bring this shady part of baseball into the open and let everyone understand what's going on I think as you seem to indicate I think a lot of ball players would be for that yeah except for except for again like the Michael Pineda you can't you can't just go I'm gonna dump a half a cup of pine tar on my neck and pretend that, that it's normal like that there's Literally, they're and then again, they're stretching the rule too. If you make if you make this rule and you're allowed to have sticky some kind of sticky substance, people are going to try to stretch that, right? So it's like being able to go, okay, how can we regulate it to make sure? Because if I can doctor something else up before I go out on the field, and I know that then I can combine that with something else, and it's even stickier, then we're we're digging ourselves a hole. So I mean, that's that's something for baseball to have to figure out. Um, but again, we all know it. Right. It's not it's not like like I've been hitting before where I'm like, dude, I know that he has sticky stuff on his wrist. He keeps on going to the wrist, but it's all right. It's part of the game. Right. As long as he's doing it respectfully. All right. We like to finish every episode with JP career trivia. We got off to a bumpy start last week. As we saw earlier in the episode, JP's still a little bit rattled by the whole the bunt thing. Yeah. Uh, This one. I think might be a little bit uh, better. It's definitely more positive. So we're looking into your stats against certain pitchers. And so what I found out is that there's a bunch of guys you've hit two home runs against. That's the most you've ever hit against any individual pitcher. There's one guy who you've hit two home runs against that you've only faced twice. I know exactly you who, know it who it is. You know who it is. So yeah, this is, we're at, whoa, don't don't so, give it away. Sorry, so sorry. Big you, jump, right now big you're at guy. 0 for 4. Or one for five, depending how you want to score it. There was a dry run one that you got. So we'll call it one for five. You're trying to get closer to 500. You faced him twice. You took him deep both times. Who is he? Oh, 100% Jonathan Nice. Yep, that's correct. I'm, New York Mets. Yes. It was right there. It was right Dude, on the tip of your tongue. I know exactly. I actually know exactly who it was because I, I remember I actually was talking about it the other day because... Uh, he had given up a home run to I think I want to say to your man crush uh, Acuna, and I like I like me some Ronald Acuna yeah, Jr. I, I, your man crush. So I think 
Uh, I saw him give up a homer, and I I looked to somebody and I said, "Well, you know who else has a couple homers off of him?" <laughs> and I was like, "I do." And I remember both of them. Remember him very well. Um, so again, the positive ones you're gonna see that I know much more than the negative ones because even though bunting is not considered negative, but it depends who you ask. For me, yeah, for me, it's I consider it negative. So if you're gonna say like, "Hey," Do we bunt this guy first and second, nobody out? I'm telling you, go fly a kite. Some <laughs> other person might enjoy that. Not me. So what was it about John Neese, who's kind of been like a decent pitcher most of his career, never a Cy Young candidate, but, you know, a guy who can help a team. What was it about him that, you, I don't know, that lined it up for you? Uh, you know, what's weird is honestly, there's really nothing because he was in the National League, right? So I had never faced him. Never knew anything about him other than seeing him on film. And my first at bat, I remember he got 2-0 and on me. And I said, uh, I know he likes to throw his cutter uh, and hitters counts. So I'm going to look for the ball in. And he threw a cutter in and I hit a home run to the left. And then the next at bat, I knew that because I had hit that cutter in, he was going to try to throw something away. And so on the hitters count again, I think it, I'm pretty sure it was a 1-0 count. This is how much I remember the good stuff is – then he tried to throw like a, a fastball away to me and I hit it to left center field and I hit another home run. But I I mean, there was nothing special, but there's guys, listen, there's a lot more guys that I have never faced or faced and didn't do anything off of than guys that I did good off of like that. So I know uh, that that was one guy that I felt, you know, good off of that day. And those are my only two at bats. I'm two for two with two homers off of him. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Hall of Famers before. If you only faced John Neese, you wouldn't just be Hall of Famer. You'd be inner circle. Yeah, I would not be talking to you on this podcast anymore. I'd, I'd say no, Nick. So if John, if John Neese is listening, you know, we're not criticizing your career, but also mix up those pitch no, sequences a little bit. No, no, oh. no. If, if, if you give up two homers on two at-bats to me, you suck. No, right. actually, he's doing pretty good. Yeah, he's, doing, he's still out there. All right, so this time we had a negative memory lane and a positive JP career trivia Maybe I'll spin that around next time. We'll have a nice story from JP and we'll uh, dig deep into the darkest parts of his career for the trivia. Oh, that's it's you know what? Honestly, the the digging for the darkest parts is really probably going to take you a really long time, possibly maybe 10 seconds, 15, and you'll be able to pull up some dark stuff. (laughs) All right. That's all for us this week. I hope you enjoyed. Remember to subscribe on whatever podcast channels preferable to you. Um, We appreciate you listening in. (laughs) 